Some listeners may find the following content highly disturbing and controversial. Listener discretion is advised. So grab your drink, grab your dog, and let the fuckery begin. This is Liquor and Luminol. I'm Haley. I'm Kristen. And I'm Emily. And this is our first fucking episode. Whoop whoop. I'm excited. And we're taking down a big guy for the first one. We really are. We're really stepping out on a limb here. I'm really excited. I'm really glad we picked him to do the first one because he really, he changed how we find serial killers nowadays. Yeah. Um, we're doing Ed Kemper. I was just going to say, is this a secret? <laughs> gonna, it's, it's a secret. It's a secret. Uh, right? Um, so, yeah. I guess we could start with how Liquor and Luminol got started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Haley, take it away. Okay. Uh, first, Kristen and I work together. We work in the um, corporate world. Mm-hmm. We'll leave it at that. Administrative uh, sis- assistance. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, of course, like COVID happened. We just got close and discovered we both have a passion for true crime and podcasts and then we're like hey let's start a podcast we came up with the brilliant name (laughs) maybe we're biased and that's literally as far as we got um and then life happened and then emily came and then then i showed up and and i was like you guys like murder as well and we're like yeah and we're like well we've been thinking about doing a podcast and emily's like fuck yeah let's do it and then we just never stopped it was full-blown the next day we talked about it we bought podcasting equipment <laughs> and um Hit with the, the help running. of my father we have now figured this out yes your father's name jay 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 shout out shout out to jay thank you jay thank you jay <laughs> so couldn't um, do it without you so luminol liquor and luminol so let's start off with what's your guys's favorite alcoholic beverages Mine is a Moscow Mule. Oh, classy bitch. Ooh, fancy. Copper fancy. mugs. With the copper mug? Fuck With yeah. The copper mug. Yes. 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 That's like the ginger beer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you could sometimes like put tequila in it and then Ooh, it's a spicy. I don't know if called something else. I've literally never had one. I'm you lost. should have one. You should. I'm not a big drinker, to be honest. Oh. Like, I know what that drink is. Mm-hmm. But, but you I, like whiskey. I do like whiskey, but just whiskey. Nothing else in it. See, that, yeah. So whiskey on the rocks kind of girl. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, but I will say around. my favorite drink is a margarita. Like, Ooh. I'll throw down on a margarita. Ooh, extra day. salt? Extra salt. Do you like it on the rocks or do you like it? On the rocks. Yeah. That's and, like, the whole sugar on the rim thing, like, let's not. That's disgusting. Yeah, let's just. Do you like regular or strawberry? Like, just straight up? Prefer regular. Regular. Yeah. Nothing nothing crazy. Um, I'm not crazy myself. Just whiskey. Jack and Coke, mm-hmm. a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing crazy. I do like Angry Orchard. Yes. And like, you know, oh, can we say names? Well, sponsor us. Uh, <laughs> 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 like, yeah. you know, apple cider, stuff like that. I do like mixing apple cider with Fireball. Okay. I know. I people are drink see, Fireball. I know. A lot of people can't. But <laughs> I have harsh. yet to have a bad experience with Fireball. So I'm still safe. Bless Knock you. on some wood. I know. <laughs> I'm still pretty good on that. <laughs> Um, so that's the first part of our name. The second part is Luminol. Who wants to take over explaining that in case our listeners have no idea what that is? 
we had to Google this because we, we're like, yeah. how dumb should we put we this? We know what luminol is. Yes. But yeah, we scientifically, know what it is, but we like, don't know how it works. Yeah. So it's basically a chemical reaction. And it's like a it's like a blue light glow. So like if you're ever at a crime scene, you see a picture of a crime scene and like there's blood. There's shit glowing. And there's shit glowing. That's because luminol. And you spray it on the blood and everything oxidizes and it becomes a, a glowing um, like black light effect. And like if somebody has cleaned the scene, mm-hmm. yeah, like you can still it still yeah, sees yeah, it. Yeah, it'll like oxidize with like mm-hmm. the bleach or any sort of cleaning products and it'll like just smear it. So mm-hmm. basically you can't hide anything if they're spraying luminol in your in your shit. In your shit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's the name, liquor and luminol we came up with. Um, how'd you guys get into true crime? So, I think, besides my mom being into true crime and kind of just like, you know, (laughs) raising me and having me be interested in it, what really got me was Casey Anthony. When that trial happened, Mm -hmm. I was glued to the computer watching the entire trial. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was working in the legal field so that also like intrigued me even more to like know as much as I knew about like the actual hearings and all of that so I think that's when I was truly like like this is my shit yes and like these people are fucking crazy yeah this is my calling (laughs) I've seen the light (laughs) I need to know more oh my god okay Emily um I don't know when my interest started. I literally was like a child watching any sort of like true crime, horror movie, gore. It didn't Give freak me, me out. I was just like, saw, I'm watching it on repeat. <laughs> like, it just, I've always been. Were you like a little eight year old? Like, oh my gosh. And I like, was just like, mom, did you see when they cut his head off? <laughs> she was like, that could be alarming. But. I just, I've always, therapy. I've always just been into it. I've also always been in therapy. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. And Mental that's health fine. is important. It, it is. <laughs> Call your therapist after this, please. <laughs> but yeah, I've just always been into it from like a super young age. And I always remember hearing about Black Dahlia murder mm-hmm. and that like fascinated me. Um, myself, I I'm a third generation true crime junkie, I would say. Um, when my grandma passed away, I remember we were cleaning out her house and she had, you know, back in the day they didn't have podcasts, they didn't okay. have this to get your true <laughs> crime <laughs> obsession. And she had books about John Bonet. Oh, so that's like that's how they got information about it. People wrote books yeah, about pe- it. People read books. <laughs> like books, not podcasts, you know, there was no With blogs words. or anything, like actual <laughs> chapters. So she was really into John Bonet, and I remember being young and my mom and her talking about it on the phone about like, oh my gosh, who do you think did it? And then as I got older, my mom and I really got into it. And I feel like every year, the true crime like you, world, I guess you would say, like really highlights a past murder. So I remember it was John Bonet a few years ago. Then they did, you know, Kaylee Anthony, and then they did the Menendez brothers, mm-hmm. Manson. You know, they mm-hmm. kind of OJ. They like kind of go yeah. back and revisit this. And I remember every time, every year, my mom would like binge watch everything. And we're like, did you see this one? Did you yeah. see that one? So um, yeah, and I think this it wasn't my quote unquote like most memorable or favorite murder, but the one that I first one I remember is. Um, actually from Kansas City it's called the precious doe and yes. this was like when mm-hmm. I was 
a child. And we're from the Kansas City area, if y'all don't know. And this was like the first one that I remember as a child. And they found this poor little sweet baby angel's head. And then they later found her body somewhere else. And I think it came out that her dad finally did. But that was the first time I was like, wait, what? They're actually evil in the world. And I was young. And close to home. And close to home. And it really, really, really impacted. But I probably, the first one I really got into would probably have to be Kaylee. Um, Like you, Kristen, and just that one really was like, and like her face and just like everything just really the whole thing really hit home and also like John Bonet because it was like along the same mm-hmm. line it's like nobody knows what happened and all of a yeah. sudden they were here one day and the next they're gone so probably probably those probably you know say. bringing up OJ reminds me of when I went to California as a kid and sure enough my mom takes me to the OJ California yeah the, yeah. the yeah. OJ LA. home where it happened yeah. like you can see or through the gate exactly where up. and I just remember my was mom's, it eerie it was like well of course I was pretty young yeah. so like while I you knew didn't what like happened yeah I didn't were. know the mm-hmm. full story and my mom was just losing she's like that's where it happened I could see it you know yeah, like, like the crime scene pictures yes, are flipping through your head yes, as you're looking yeah. at the scene and yeah. like now looking back on it, I'm like oh my gosh I I would be in the exact same position she was in I would have been losing it like, yeah this is insane yeah yeah because it's like a surreal moment when you're just like you know you hear about all this kind of stuff and it's almost like at that point it's like a story Mm -hmm. and then when you really start thinking about it you're just like there were real there was a real crime there were real victims this truly impacted Mm -hmm. people in such a way Mm -hmm. visiting a location just brings it yeah yeah. to the forefront it really hits home way, it's not something yeah. you see on tv it's like no, yes. this, this is it it solidifies it it's yes. like this is this yeah. is the, the gravity of it really hits you and like, i mean yeah. i think it's fair to say that talking about it as much as we do you kind of have to in a way yeah. like disconnect from it right because i mean eh, it can get it can you can get dark. really deep into yeah. it yeah. Oh, yeah you can get yeah. bogged down by the fact mm-hmm. of like I mean, just the details of everything that happened. So yeah. even with this, looking into it, there were times that I was like, had to take a step back. I'm like, oh yeah, my Where gosh, it was just like, Ed, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of Ed, I've always found it really interesting. As long as I've been in true crime for many years, what fuels a serial killer to do what they do? That has always intrigued me. Like, what was, was it a stressor? Was it a trigger? Was it something that's just been festering for so long that they just finally happened? Or is it just, like, all of a sudden, just like, nah, let's just do this. I think there's too many factors. It, it yes. Just, oh, yeah. It yes. could be and so, so many so different things. And it's so specialized to that mm-hmm. one individual. Yes. Um, to where you can't just put, like, a blanket statement yeah. on it. But it comes back to that nature versus yes. nurture. Yes. You know? Yes. 100%. Like, because people have shitty childhoods and... Not. But people also have great childhoods. Yes, and, and they and, uh, still. Yeah, yeah. But that's always, always intriguing. That's why I'm really happy we're doing Ed the first time because he, I mean, he rounded the entire yes criminal profiling. Yes, he helped the FBI. He was so open about everything. Yeah, I mean, he just yes. yeah, he loved. What do he you loved want talking to know? About he loved yeah. to talk. He loved getting the reaction out of people when he's yes. like, "Yeah, I cut her head off," and then people are like, "I'm sorry, what?" Yeah, he was. He wanted that attention because he never got it from his mom, mm-hmm. and then he finally, you know, made it. a name for himself basically, mm-hmm. and he just loved it. He would not shut up. <laughs> there are hours. Upon hours of Ed just talking <laughs> about himself. <laughs> and yeah, we will get into that. We're going to start off with Kristen doing uh, the early stages of his life. 
and then I will be taking over the murders, the co-ed murders, and Emily will round it out with uh, what happened after the murders. The aftermath. The aftermath. <laughs> okay. So Edmund Emil Kemper III was born December 18th, 1948 in Burbank, California. His parents were Edmund Kemper II and Clarnell Kemper. He had two sisters, Susan and Alan. His father went by the nickname E.E. and was said to be extremely shy and passive while his mother was the opposite and quite a bitch. (laughs) That's putting it lightly. (laughs) Putting it very lightly. Um, Despite treating E.E. and Ed like crap, her daughters actually believed that Clarnell was a really good mom uh, and didn't see any wrongdoing on her part. So a little se- sexism, maybe? A little sexist? So actually, yes. She was scared that he would become gay if they were too like involved involved in caring or like showing too much affection and compassion. Because having a gay child is like, so terrible. So horrible. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so um, apparently, uh, E.E. tried to show more affection to mm-hmm. Ed than Clarnell, and Clarnell would also verbally abuse ee in those circumstances mm-hmm. blaming him for making it sensitive yes exactly so um ee was a soldier in world war ii and continued working with the military after the war testing nuclear weapons in 1957 ee decided he was leaving clarnell he had had enough of that shit so um he's quoted saying Suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. <laughs> Lovely. So clearly she was a gem. If that just does not sum it up. I right. Mean. <laughs> After the divorce, Clarnell and the kids moved to Montana where she picked up a drinking habit, to say the least. Um, she basically started to just distrust Ed. He, he was not a little guy. He was a big kid. Mm-hmm. Both of the uh, Clarnell and EE apparently were very tall. I don't know exact height, but they were apparently tall themselves. So Ed turned out to be a large child. Um, so as he kept growing and you know became weirder and weirder, she started to fear him, <laughs> um, and she started making Ed sleep in the basement because she was concerned that Ed was going to attack her or his sisters. So. While sleeping in the basement, she would lock him in the basement. So he could not get out if he wanted Which to. Which is so fucked up. Like. Yeah. Um, he, this was when he was eight, too. So he was a child. Yeah, like, could a, you just, yeah. ugh. Um, so obviously treating her daughters much better did not make her daughters sleep in the basement. Mm-hmm. So Ed has described feeling as though the living room was earth, the basement was hell, and upstairs was heaven. So he basically thought every night that he was going to hell while his sisters were going to heaven. So his mom was already planting seeds of hatred towards women. Right. Like, you can see how his mind started coming up with these. Because I believe there's also a quote of him saying that, like, you know, these were where the demons were, and he had to sleep with them every night and all those. Like, the furnace was was like hell. Like, be the devil talking to him, and he would get these horrible thoughts. Yes. Um, so then, uh, as this is happening, his sisters and him started to play some pretty morbid games that he had come up with. Um, one was where they reenacted execution. So he, he would have his sisters tie him to a chair and then throw things at them. They would leave the room, 
lock Ed in the room, and he would start pretending as though he was suffocating to death. Mm. So that's fun. Um, we all played that game, right? Right. <laughs> there was another game, too, where he would roll his sisters up in a, uh, a rug and try to yes. see how long it took for them to like yeah, get out. Like wiggle out. Yeah. yeah. And I heard he got, like, satisfaction of seeing, like, a woman struggle. Yes. yes. I read that somewhere. They say that they think that that's when it started, like, noticing that women. Yeah, women struggling to, like, brought him some sort of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Ed was 10, he started acting on some of these dark thoughts that he had. Um, and he took the family cat and buried it alive outside. Oh. So, basically, he dug a hole, put the cat in the hole. And then once the cat had suffocated to death, he dug the cat back up. Um, if that wasn't enough, he decided to de- decapitate it and then dissect the rest of the body and examine the cat's insides. Which, spoiler alert, will not be the last time. Yeah, that's where the interest uh, <laughs> sparked, to say the least. And, you know, this is interesting, too, because they always say, well, most of the time they say that serial killers start with, like, animals mm-hmm. so i just feel like this is just obviously yeah. red flag number one mm-hmm. um and clarnell actually noticed that this was red flag number one so she instantly blamed ed for the missing cat and would regularly hound him about it but he enjoyed the pain that this had inflicted on his mom so it only like re-encouraged that this behavior was kind of getting him what he wanted yeah um because again mom was not nice and mom was like the number one hatred he had mm-hmm. so Years down the road, when Ed's 15, the family decides to get another cat. This cat instantly became very close with Alan and not Ed, which Ed clearly did not think was the best decision. Yes, his sister. Um, Ed decided to cut this cat into pieces, and most of the remains were put outside, but the rest of them he decided to put into his closet. So a few weeks later, Clarnell ended up finding these remains, probably based off that smell mm-hmm. that would be coming from that closet. Mm-hmm. So once she found the remains, this just amplified everything again that she had already thought about him. So she physically started abusing him. And again, this is the time when she started drinking. So between already being an abusive mom, drinking, finding this, and now physically abusing him, dude's not living the best life. Uh, So then when he was 15, he decided, I'm getting out of here, and I'm going to return to California to go live with his dad. His dad and him had not seen each other for six years. So, you know, things had changed. Ed had always looked up to his father, but, again, being gone for six years, I guess he he expected to be welcomed with open arms, and that just didn't happen. Um, E.E. had been remarried and had a new son with his new wife. So when Ed came in, E.E. obviously, you know, had to talk with the new fam (laughs) about Ed coming in. And again, let's reiterate, Ed was not a small kid. So this is a large child who is just socially very awkward, very awkward. He comes in and wants to stay with them, and E.E.'s wife and son just felt that Ed was completely unsettling and... Like they knew something was up with him. Instantly. Yeah. Like, there yeah. was no real discussion. She she instantly just didn't want yeah. him in there. Uneasy feeling. So apparently she had every right to feel that way because soon after moving in, she took a shower, and when she opened the door, Ed was just standing there, blankly staring at her. Oh. She asked him to move, and he just 
stood there staring at her boobies. Mm. You know? So once she got around him, he followed her to the bedroom door. So I'm, when I looked into this, I kind of got the feeling that she was like, (laughs) I'm getting away from you very quickly. And he's like, quickly behind her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be. It's a very unsettling feeling because, uh, first of all, coming out of the shower, you're not expecting <laughs> anybody to be there, but a very large 15 year old um, who has no idea about women other nothing. than his crazy ass mom and his two sisters yes. that were treated like God's gift to earth. Yes. So, oh, yeah. So, wife, which I don't actually know her name, I apologize. She instantly told EE. You either kick him out or I'm me and yeah. our kid are leaving. I'm I'm not doing this. So EE clearly stuck between a rock and a hard place. He felt bad for Ed and he actually felt as though because he had quote unquote abandoned Ed when the divorce happened that mm-hmm. it was sort of his fault that he was such a weirdo. Um so he didn't want to return Ed to Clarnell, knowing that leaving him with Clarnell's probably the reason why he is the way he is, he decided to ask his parents, Edmund Kemper the first and Maud Kemper to take him in, which they so lovingly decided to do so. Um, again, Ed's still 15 at this time when he moved in with his grandparents and he pretty much instantly didn't like living there. Maud, his grandmother, was not the sweetest old lady. She had spent most of her life living on the ranch and was just known to be extremely tough. Uh, but she was completely convinced because of how tough she was that she could correct all of the mistakes that Clarnell had made in raising Ed. So she was ready to like, you know, I'm going to yeah. rehabilitate this kid. I'm going to make him normal. Yeah. Well, her first mistake was when she started regularly insulting Clarnell to Ed because it quickly just drove the two of them apart, mm-hmm. which I find interesting because if you don't like your mom that much, then why would grandma insulting her offend you quite as much as it did? I think Ed just always wanted to please his mom. Deep down inside, I think he just always looked yeah. for satis- her, her satisfaction or her, yeah, um, her like approval. Approval, approval. approval. Yeah, yeah, that's valid. Um, so outside of uh, doing a lot of shit talking on Clarnell, she was also kind of verbally abusive to Ed Sr. So... He basically looked at her as like, you you are Clarnell. You are yeah. the same woman as Clarnell. You're doing the same thing that strong I... Strong-headed, strong-willed, you know. Yes. And mouth and a, yeah. a man-hater, yes. I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, when Maude would... Well, Ed and his grandfather would try to spend time alone, but Maude would always interject when this happened and would basically force Ed to be confined to himself. Mm-hmm. Um which again is like is like is his mom Carnell mm-hmm. because Carnell she was would like do. I'm gonna lock you in the basement and you have no human interaction yeah. exactly so so m- moving in with his grandparents did not it no was it was the same thing it was the same thing he was isolated yes. completely isolated yes. in this ranch with this woman that was just just like Clarnell and refused like male bonding and we had male bonding it was frowned upon yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which basically this is when. It's said that when his violent fantasies started to turn towards, more towards women, Mm -hmm. he obviously kind of had those thoughts with his mother, but like in realization that his grandmother was the same, it kind of turned into like a women. Yeah, he realized, he's starting to think, well, maybe all women are like this, because the Mm -hmm. two prominent women he's had in his life are like this, so he's just assuming. Yeah, exactly. 
So on August 27th, 1964, Ed Sr. decided to go grocery shopping and leave Ed and Maude alone at the ranch. Maude and Ed eventually started arguing as they had in the past, but this was a pretty intense fight. Uh, Ed turned around and stormed out of the room with his grandmother still yelling at him and went straight to go grab his hunting rifle. He turned back around and went straight back to his grandmother. She instantly asked him to put down the rifle, although he chose not to do so and shot her once in the head and twice in the back. He wasn't done, had to get the rest of his anger out, so he grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed her until he was satisfied. I don't have the exact number of stabs. I'd be curious to know that now that I'm saying this out loud because <laughs> apparently from what I, the research I saw was it was intense. I mean, yeah. he went for like a minute. A, yes. A it was a rage. rage. This rage, yeah. yes, was yeah. coming out in these, yeah. So once he was done, he decided to take her up to her bedroom and lay her on her bed. At this point, he started realizing that his grandfather was going to see this mm -hmm. and witness his wife dead, and he didn't want to put Ed Sr. through that. So he wanted to do him a favor, basically, and uh, not make him witness it. So when Ed Sr. pulled into the driveway, Ed went ahead and grabbed that rifle again and met Ed Sr. out at the car. As Ed was Ed Sr. Excuse me, was grabbing groceries, Ed just basically snuck up behind him and shot him in the head. And that was that. He yeah. didn't take it any farther. Uh, he had no idea what to do next, though, because this obviously wasn't completely planned out. So he's like, what do I do? And he realizes the only person he can lean on is Clarnell, interestingly enough. Right. So he calls her, and she just tells him, you need to call the police. That's the only thing you can do. So Ed simply and calmly calls the police and tells them exactly what he had just done. Apparently, when the police arrived, Ed was just sitting outside, calm, cool, collected, mm -hmm. and did everything they asked. Was completely cooperative, no, no issues whatsoever. Told them exactly what happened. Um, Heard too that the police didn't believe that he was 15 because mm -hmm. he was so he large. They so thought that it was an adult male yeah. sitting on the porch waiting for them to show up. They mm -hmm. didn't know that he was so young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when the police asked him. Why he did it, he was quoted saying, I just wanted to know what it felt like to kill grandma. Mm. So he was obviously taken to prison um, and analyzed by some psychiatrists. And it was declared that the only way a child could commit such a crime was if he was criminally insane. So once he was deemed criminally insane, he was actually deemed a criminally insane, paranoid schizophrenic. Um, and he decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, and he won that case, actually. So he was sentenced to an indefinite amount of time at the state hospital. Atascadero. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Although his stay at the hospital was designed to help, it really only seemed to help him become a killer. Mm -hmm. He was extremely polite and well-behaved while he was at the hospital, um, but more importantly, Ed was smart. And they, the doctors, started realizing how smart he was. So they decided to give him an IQ test. So let me preface this by saying the average person has an IQ of 100. He scored 145. Mm -hmm. So he was basically a genius. Um, and they, the doctors then noticed that the high IQ was unlikely to be associated with schizophrenia. 
and eventually they determined that he was misdiagnosed originally. So the hospital psychologist interviewed Ed for weeks on end and gave Ed a new diagnosis, passive aggressive type personality trait. Um, and this new diagnosis made them believe that he had a better chance of rehabilitation. So that's kind of when the idea of like letting him out someday started. Um, and being as smart as he was, again, he realized that there was a chance that he could be released if he started showing that he had made strides towards sanity. So eventually he was asking if he could be more involved around the hospital um, and they allowed him to assist with the study of other inmates. So at first he was literally just delivering files to the psychologist while they were in doing these interviews and making little runs for them, nothing too serious, but he started to read the files even though he wasn't supposed to. So as he read the files, he became even more and more interested in all these different inmates and what was happening. So he asked if he could be even more involved. Of course, why not? Helpful, so helpful man. Yeah. Just, yeah, let me help you You're out. You're so polite. How nice of you to offer. So they allowed him to sit in on interviews with other in inmates. And this is like murderers, sex offenders, psychopaths. Like These are all not walks of yeah, all life. Walks, yeah. yeah, these are not great people. So as Ed's sitting in there, he's obviously just absorbing this information and learning different tips for use later on in life, basically. Mm -hmm. He quickly fooled the psychologist into believing that he had been completely rehabilitated. They knew that he still had this massive hatred for his mom, but in every other aspect, they saw rehabilitation. He understands yada, yada, yada. So on December 18, 1969, Ed's 21st birthday actually, he was released into the care of California State Authority. So although he was 21, since he'd spent six years in prison, they had to help him come up with a place to live, things to do, a job, because yeah. he obviously didn't know how to even begin doing those things. So before being released, the psychologists were told, or excuse me, suggested that Ed not be returned to his mother's custody. Mm -hmm. Well, when Ed's father refused to take him back, his sisters refused to take him back, his options were either to go back to the hospital or go to Clarnell. Yeah. So, he went back to Clarnell. Good old Clarnell. Mm -hmm. And like we said, I think it was because he still, deep down, wanted his mother's approval. He wanted... Absolutely. Yeah, he wanted his mom to love him like love she him. should have... Like he the did his entire sisters. time. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. his sisters. Mm -hmm. First, let's talk about the society that Ed's about to step into. So it was the late 60s, early 70s. It was the hippie era, right? And Santa Cruz was considered a big hippie town. And Ed has been locked up for six years. So the world's like completely different. Like think about. Yeah. Yes. And he didn't even get to ago. experience being a teenager. Exactly. Let alone does he know how to function in his 20s. Right. Exactly. So Ed ended up moving back in with his mom one day after being released. And for the first few months, like, they got along pretty fine. Ed enrolled into community college, and he always admired the police, and he actually applied to be a police officer but was turned down. Not because of his criminal record, but because he was too tall. Dude was huge. He was. At age 21, he stood 6'9 and was almost 300 pounds. Um, but he ended up working construction for the California Department of Transportation. And the honeymoon stage I spoke of earlier of li living with his mom was coming to an end and the tension was starting to rise. With a stable job, he got permission from his parole officer to live on his own. He got an apartment with a friend 
and he was actually a regular at a local sleazy bar called the jury room which was right around the corner from the santa cruz courthouse and the bar was a favorite of local cops so even though he couldn't be a police officer he found some friendships with the local cops they even gave him the nickname big ed and they would buy each other drinks and he would later describe himself as quote a friendly nuisance around the bar and we'll get into more of that later um (laughs) so ed had a pretty stable life he had a steady job he had an apartment whatever but ed was lonely per usual yes he wanted a girlfriend but he had extremely low self-esteem which we have been talking about I mean, the man was locked up for his most formative years. I mean, the teenage years are usually the time when you're learning how to talk to the opposite sex or people that you were attracted to, but he never had that. So with no experience when it came to women, he met a 16-year-old, and the two would later get engaged. But once Cornell found out, she was outraged and called Ed disgusting and everything else because as we talked about, this was kind of a fear of hers that she had with his... um, sisters he would even go as far as to go to ed's house and tell him off say this behavior is acceptable because on the phone was just not cutting it she would actually show up to his house she had to get in his face about it yes yes and like said leave the girl alone like this is just this is just not okay so ed you know broke up with his fiance so she she he goes to carnell and is like look how about you introduce me to women my own age you're working at the college you see santa cruz as an administrative assistant why don't you introduce me to some women there well because that's a great idea the woman that abused me my entire life why don't i reach out to her for my uh love interest <laughs> she is gonna be a great pick you know women. <laughs> you know but maybe he he was looking for well if you don't approve of this one obviously right that goes back to wanting mom's approval yes all the time. Yeah, then you right. pick me one that you approve of um, but Carnell refused and laughed at him, saying, you don't deserve to meet any nice women, or would even go as far to say, quote, you'll never have girls like these, which is referring to the co-eds at the university she worked at. Jeez. So, Ed being Ed, he starts picking up female hitchhikers, which, side note, hitchhiking was completely normal back in the day. Yes. Because we didn't know that people like Ed Kemper were around that would do things like these um and it was really popular at uc santa cruz because the house is on this big ass hill so if it's dark or the weather's bad students took advantage of people helping out so he would use this time picking up female hitchhikers to learn how to talk to women and like we touched on ed was smart his iq was 145 which a little side note put this in reference for you guys warren buffett has an iq of 145 i did not know that yes so I knew he was rich, but I didn't know he was that smart. Like he's <laughs> he's up there. He's a genius. Yeah. So he he's not he's not no average Joe Schmo. No. He's a pretty smart guy. He's so smart, he learned tricks of how of like what would put his passengers at ease. One being which when I read this, I like took a step back and I thought and I was like, Yeah, this makes sense. He would a woman would approach his car and he would look at his wristwatch to be like look like he's like checking the time, like, do I have time for this? So it created the illusion of I'm an apartment man. I've got important things to do. Like I've got I'm somewhere just trying to be. I'm trying to do you a favor. Exactly. Yes. I'm just trying to help you out real yes. quick. Yes. And almost like saying I'm meeting somebody. They're expecting me. There's no way I would have time to murder you or do anything to you. Right. Like it's going to be a quick one and done. Yes. Yeah. Like I'm doing this favor for you. And I was like that is I would have. That's wh- tricky. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, but eventually his fantasies grew and he began making a murder kit with handcuffs, blankets, plastic bags, and hunting knives. 
and he would eventually borrow a pistol from a friend that he kept under his front seat. And he would also pull this trick when a woman would get in. They would come in, sit down, shut the door, and he'd be like, oh, wait, your door's not shut. And he would reach over the passenger seat, open the passenger door, and then close it. But while he closed it, he would drop a tube of chapstick in the track of the door so they couldn't open the door from the passenger side. Wow. Like, what the fuck? That's, (laughs) wow. I (laughs) figured you were going to say he was just going to lock it, but no. No. We are. No, we're in it. And the, right? And you wouldn't even think twice about it. I don't know. I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable with a stranger reaching across. Yes. But at the same time, here I am in 2020. I'm 30. There's yes. plenty of research to show. Like, at the time, yeah, I probably would have been, I probably would have been too high to know what was <laughs> happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are in the, the 60s, 70s. That's so. what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> in Santa Cruz. So. I would have been having fun before I was hitchhiking. Right, so. right. <laughs> So this brings us to Ed's first co-ed victims. The killings would line up between arguments that Ed and Carnell would have. Also, side note, um, all these retellings of these murders are Ed's words, obviously, because... Because he let it all out. Yes. So he wanted everyone to know. In everybody. detail. So kind of take it, we don't know if they're 100% factual of what we know. On May 7th, 1972, Ed picked up Anita Luchessa and Marianne Pesci. Both 18, they're college roommates, and they were on their way to Stanford. He would later say he wanted to, quote, test himself and resist the temptation. Marianne got in the back seat, and Anita was in the passenger seat. Ed started backtracking and circling around to throw off the girl's sense of direction for about an hour until he could think of a secluded place to take them, which he knew because he worked for the Department of Transportation. As this was happening, the three talked about whatever. It was just cheery conversation. The girls didn't suspect anything until he pulled in a secluded area and pulled out the pistol from underneath the seat and pointed it at Marianne, who was in the back seat. He realized that he wanted to separate the girls, so he handcuffs Marianne and leads Anita to the trunk to lock her in there. Can I just say it's interesting that he chose to do his first, well, outside of killing his grandparents first, but his first murder is two women at the same time. Right? That's, like, that's bold. Right. Like that's you, like the, you didn't a lot of other things could have happened like one could have got out while mm-hmm. the other one while you're putting the other one in the trunk exactly like, there's too many factors and uh, like you're right it's, it was uh, most serial killers are like let's just kill one let's start with one i mean let's let's go in <laughs> slow i mean but i guess technically you could consider his grandparents too yeah because that's it valid. was it was maude and yeah. then it was senior yeah that's so. true so he leads me into the trunk and lock her in there he goes back to the car where Mary Ann is handcuffed and puts a plastic bag over her head. He wraps a bathrobe belt around her neck, and as he's starting to pull to strangle her with the belt, it snaps. He then notices that Mary Ann has bitten a hole through the plastic bag so she can breathe. So Ed's like, well, fuck. Where did we get this bathrobe belt? He, th- this was like <laughs> in his supply. murder case. Oh, this was in the murder case. <laughs> this okay. was like, All he, right. I, I, that's kind of, I thought too, it was like a bathrobe belt. Like, he... He was mean, prepared. He was prepared. He and he had a plethora of options so I guess to it choose was from. More planned than I'm really thinking it was. I mean, yes, he was, he was ready. He was ready. Okay. He he had. It was just um, whoever, right? It, it, the best opportunity. But this is what day. I'm doing. Yes, yeah. yes. So he realizes this isn't going to work. So he grabs a knife and starts attacking Marianne and stabs her to death and slashes her throat ear to ear. He talks about later in an interview how he didn't realize how hard it was to stab somebody to death. 
He would also admit that while he handcuffed Marianne, the back of his hand brushed her breast and he got embarrassed and was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, even though he knew he was going to kill her. It's like, oh, I'm sorry that I brushed against you, yeah. but uh, he yeah. right. stabbed and you. And he would also later say how he would not stab women in the breast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like okay. he was too uncomfortable with it. Yeah, after he kills Marianne, he heads to the back where Anita is and opens the trunk and Anita rightfully starts freaking the fuck out. One, he heard the struggle, and two, she sees Ed covered in blood. So he says, your friend smarted off to me, so I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help her out. Ed confessed in an interview that he told her this to calm her down because, quote, I couldn't let her know what I did, end quote, even though he had full intention of killing Anita, too. So that kind of, like, lines up with the grandfather, like, not wanting his grandfather. It's almost like he's doing these, what he considers a mercy killing. Yes. And that's not at all what it is. Right. No. But that's what, how he's justifying what he's doing. Exactly, till the very last minute. And then he's like, psych, I'm actually going to kill you. So he tries to stab Anita as soon as she gets out of the car, but Anita's wearing um, heavy overalls, so the knife wouldn't penetrate through her clothes. And uh, let me just say, when I was reading Ed recounting this murder, Anita puts up one hell of a fight. He ended up stabbing himself in the process of trying to slash her throat is how much she was fighting. Oh, wow. Um, But eventually, with blood loss, uh, he would stab her to death. Um, So the girls are both dead. He puts them in the back of the trunk under a blanket, and he's heading home. Well, on his way home, he gets pulled over because of a broken taillight. Either when Anita was in the trunk, she was trying to get out, so she broke the taillight from the inside, or in the struggle of when he was trying to kill her, it broke. So the cop's like, hey, your taillight's busted. And Ed being, you know, the super helpful Buddy guy, buddy of the police. Absolutely, yes. he is. He's like, oh, shoot. Do you want me to pop the trunk? You, know, you can, like, look at the wires and everything. And the cop's like, nah, you're good. I'll just give you a verbal warning, but, like, get it fixed. And Ed would later go on to say that if he was prepared to kill this cop, if he opened the trunk and he saw these dead bodies. Like, he was fully. Yeah, like, he was ready to go. He was At ready. any moment in time this night. 100%. Like, He would also go on to say that he should have been caught within the first 24 hours, but I wasn't. People got scared and mind their own business and look the other way. So he goes home. His roommate is gone. He brings the bodies in, takes photos of them, starts dismembering, dissecting, and beheads them. He has sex with both their heads and their decapitated bodies for days. And Ed engaged in necrophilia because these women couldn't say no to him at this point. He wasn't turned down by them. You know, his social awkwardness didn't get in the way. And his la- he didn't have to worry about his lack of confidence or being rejected. Yeah, because they were already his, yes. per se. Yes, There's, Yeah, you can't yeah. say anything when you're dead. Exactly. <laughs> the and whole thing confuses me when, like, you're so awkward around women to begin with. Like, you don't even know how to communicate with women. But then after they're dead, like, I just... Yeah, I don't. The psychology of that it just confuses me. Yeah. yeah. When he's done, he puts the remains of the two women in plastic bags. He buries them in the Santa Cruz Hills. The torso and the limbs in one place, the hands in another, and he would later throw the heads a few days later into a ravine. He learned this technique from hanging out with local police at the bar. He knows to separate the hands and the heads from the rest of the body because keeping the body together makes it easier to identify. He continues to use this tactic throughout the rest of his co-ed murders. Then, in August 1972, so it was three months after the killings, Marianne's skull was found, and they searched for the remaining body, but this was not found, and no trace of Anita was found either at this time. 
September 14, 1972, so this was like one-ish months after Marion's skull was found and about four months after his first co-ed murders, Ed would pick up 15-year-old Aiko Ko. Aiko was on her way to dance class when she missed her bus. While driving, he pulls the gun out that he borrowed from a friend, and Aiko, like, rightfully starts freaking the fuck out. He tells her to calm down, that he's really just been fighting depression, and he can't do it anymore. Originally, he was going to kidnap her, kill her, and then kill himself, but now he just doesn't want to kill her. Someone to talk to him in the last few hours on Earth. So Aiko calms down and just begins to have a conversation with Ed. Somehow manages to convince her to be tied up and gagged, supposedly telling her, quote, I just want a quiet place where we can tie you up and then we'll go back to my place. They arrive at her location and he shoves a gun under the front seat and instructs Aiko to get the tape out of the glove box. He puts tape over her mouth and instructs her to get in the back seat. So Aiko like flips her leg over and like rolls into the back seat. Ed then gets out of the car to grab something from the truck, but then he realizes he locked Aiko in the car with the keys and the gun smart right <laughs> um but ed somehow talks aiko into unlocking the door and letting ed back in which i'm thinking like uh, sweet baby angel's 15 years old you've got this 300 pound man right. you kind of got to think he can bust down this window before yeah well and i also think that it speaks volumes too again going back to his iq how smart he is he knows what to say to people yes the so many that he's in the in the psychiatry place like in the i don't know if that's what you want to call it but he's learning how to yes. say the right things manipulate people in mm-hmm. certain ways so i mean it, 15 years old when i was 15 years old it, and i'm in a situation like yes. that i mean i would be like yes sir yes. doing whatever you need me to do because i'm freaking out yeah but yeah, you yeah. would think that she felt threatened enough at this time to grab the gun and just be like i'm out like i'm getting yeah. out with the gun and i'm running true but i guess maybe that's you know another testament to the times yeah when it true. was you yes. know true and it's also i mean he how manipulative he is he told her i don't want to kill you i, j- I want to kill myself i don't want to hurt you right but she's got to be freaked out freaked oh, out 100 yeah. percent. yeah she's not just another day in the park like i'm sure she she's freaking out so as soon as Aiko opens the door, he attacks her. Since her mouth is covered with the tape, he suffocates her by covering her nose. He pulls her out of the car and rapes her outside. She regains consciousness in the middle of this and starts putting up a fight, and he ends up strangling her with a scarf. Ed then loads Aiko's body into the trunk. He goes to a bar and has a few drinks, and when he's leaving, he opens the trunk to make sure, one, she's dead, and also to admire his catch like a fisherman, is what he said. Jesus. I think it's interesting, again, mm-hmm. that um, even though she wasn't completely dead, he raped her. Yes. The whole sexual part of his... Yes. Yeah, it's fucking he can't, She it can't tell me, me no. That's his thing, is she can't tell me no, yeah. so now is my time. It's just so... So as long as they're not conscious, it's okay for him. From what... So from what we can gather, yeah, but... So again, my mind goes to, he was engaged at some point. So are you telling me that him and his fiance had never... That's... I'd be yeah. curious to know... That's what I read, is they had never had... Because they were both so young, and so then it kind of makes you wonder, it's like, okay, so did she never have any previous experience with anyone either? So it was just these two awkward people coming yes. together, being awkward. Be. And I mean, she's 16. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So... And and he mentally is probably 15 or 16 yes. because he was that's where he stopped being around people yeah. his age yeah. so I mean 
he could have been 21, 22 years old with a 16-year-old, but mentally, he's right there with that 16-year-old. Exactly. They don't know what they're doing. Exactly. Right. He brings her back to his apartment. The next day, dismembers and dissects her body, has sexual intercourse with her head and her body, and the following day, he bags Aiko's torso and limbs in a plastic bag, but he keeps the head and hands to, quote, find a safe place to bury them. Well, here's the kicker. Ed has an appointment that day with two psychiatrists to get his criminal record cleared. So on the way there, he throws the hands into the mountains of Santa Cruz, but not her head, which he keeps in the trunk while he's taking these psychological tests to prove that he's sane. The reports from these tests reads, quote, If I were seeing this patient without having any history available or without getting the history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free from any psychiatric illness. In effect, we are dealing with two totally different people. When we talk of the 15-year-old boy who committed the murders and the 23-year-old man we see before us now, it is my opinion that he had made a very excellent response in the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be any danger to himself or any member of society. So he passed with uh, flying colors. Now during Ed's killings, there was also another string of killings in Santa Cruz by a Robert Mullen. Mullen killed 13 people during the time Ed was also on his killing spree. Because of this, Santa Cruz was referred to as the murder capital of the world. And authorities begin encouraging students not to hitchhike. Also during this time, Ed is still frequenting the bar of the jury room, asking the cops about the murders and seeing how far they are into the investigation and all that, which is a, a common theme within some serial killers is putting themselves into the investigation. Yeah. Yep. So this brings us to 1973, almost four months after he kills Aiko. Ed has since moved back in with his mother. On January 8, 1973, Ed bought a 22 automatic pistol. It was a rainy day when he picked up 18-year-old Cynthia Shaw, or Cindy. He would eventually force her to into the trunk under the guise that they wanted to uh, head back to his place and talk. Ed would then drive her to a secluded location, open the trunk, shoot her once in the head. He took Cindy's body to his mom's house, dumped her body in the closet, and once his mom left the house the next day, would dismember her in the bathtub, dissect, and have sexual intercourse with her body. And again, since he's frequently hanging out with cops at the jury room, he knew about forensic ballistics, so he would remove the bullet fragments from Cindy's skull, and he kept the shards as trophies. He took the body apart and drove along the coast, disposing of it. But the police discovered the bodies quicker than they had the other victims. Actually, over the course of the like next few weeks, they would find Cindy's remains. Hmm. So he still had the head. So he freaked out, didn't know what to do with it. So he comes with the bright idea of burying Cindy's head in his mother's backyard with her head facing upwards towards Carnell's bedroom, saying his mother always wanted somebody to look up to her. Ed admitted he would look out and, quote, talk to it many times, saying affectionate things like you would to a girlfriend or a wife, end quote. Since co-eds are still hitchhiking and not heeding the police's warning, the police issue another warning not to accept rides without anybody who doesn't have a UC Santa Cruz sticker on their car. But if you remember, this does nothing because Carnell works at UC Santa Cruz, so Ed has a sticker on his vehicle because sometimes he would drop his mom off at school. So this gives the students a sense of false security. Also, and not to mention, sorry, no, but it's just like, I think we talked about this too. The, I mean, just because you have a sticker doesn't mean anything. That yeah. could be another student. That oh, could be absolutely. a professor. That exactly. could be what his mom did in the administrative office. Mm-hmm. Like, 
why would you just put that blanket statement of, hey, as long as they have this sticker, yeah. you're gravy. You're safe. Like, you're not. Yeah, they, I don't know where they got the yeah. impression that they were off limits. Also during this time, police were notified that Ed bought a 44 caliber handgun. Two police officers were giving a description of Ed and his address. So they showed up at Ed's neighborhood to confiscate the weapon because of his criminal background of, you know, killing his grandparents. Uh, but they were having a hard time finding the house because I guess the house numbers are labeled funny. And uh, to listen to the cop retell the story, it was kind of funny. He says uh, they're trying to find this house, trying to find, you know, where, where Ed lives, lives. And they see a man laying across his passenger seat. Like he's sitting in the driver's seat leaning across. He's mm-hmm. like working on something under the dashboard. So he's like, hey, let's like ask this guy. Maybe he knows who this Ed Kemper is. So they're like, hey, sir, excuse me, do you have a moment? And he's like, yeah, sure. And the cop retelling the story is like, he gets out of the car and gets out of the car and gets out of the car and gets out of the car. And he's like, I think this is our guy. Because he was just so big. So freaking tall. And they're like, oh, yep, this is who we're looking for. <laughs> Don't even need to ask your name, sir. sir we know. <laughs> Mr. Kemper. Mr. Kemper. <laughs> so the officers tell Ed, that they're here to confiscate a gun. But the issue is Ed doesn't know which gun the officers are after. He's got a 44 and a 22, which he just used to kill Cindy. <laughs> so Ed's like, well, fuck. <laughs> I don't want to give them the murder weapon if I don't have to. Right. So Ed being Ed, you know. How do the, they, that, sorry. How yo, do they not know that he has more than one weapon? Well, the 22 is what he borrowed from a friend. Right, okay, all right. Yeah, he only... Legally bought Legally one bought gun. One right, gun. Okay. His name. Okay. Um, well, being as smart as you are, you should be able to figure that out. Well, <laughs> um, he makes a comment. Like you said, he's like, IQ, 145. He's like, oh, it's a small gun, huh? And the cop, you know, falls in the trap and is like, well, it's a 44 mag. I would hope so. So Ed goes, uh-huh, the 44 is what you're after. Got it. He's like, it's in the trunk. And he opens up the trunk and the cops take take the two guns and or take that one gun. Two officers take one gun. Let me re-say that. <laughs> and uh, that was that. Where are these cops? So if the gun was in his trunk, mm-hmm. this is where these bodies were, dying, bleeding out. Yes. Did they, was he like cleaning out his trunk so that there was no Yeah, didn't smell notice. Yeah. blood or, I just can't believe that he would pop his trunk in front of a cop and just be like, yeah, here you go. And there's no like evidence right? of something happening. And I don't know, like the dramatization like showed like a whole bunch of blankets and they said like one of the guns was under the blankets. Like oh. Ed takes a step back. So I don't know if like physically they probably didn't see any blood spots. True. And I don't know if it was open long enough for them to like get a whiff. Get a whiff. February 5th, 1973, less than a month after Ed murdered Cindy, Ed got into a big argument with Carnell. He told his mom he was going to the movies, but instead he drove to the university campus. It was raining and dark, and he came across 22-year-old Rosalind Thorpe, or Roz. Ed noticed that Roz took note of his university sticker, and it eased his mind enough for her to accept a ride. As Ed was about to leave the campus, he noticed 21-year-old Alice Leu. He picked her up as well, so Roz is in the passenger seat, and Alice is in the back behind Roz. Three are leaving the campus, and they're alone on a dark street and close to Santa Cruz skyline. So Ed comments how beautiful it is and asks the girls if they would mind to slow down and just take in the scenery. And the girls are like, yeah, sure, whatever, it's pretty. (laughs) With the car still running, Ed takes his foot off the gas, but also keeps his foot off the brakes so the taillights don't illuminate. He takes the gun that's hidden under his leg and shoots Ross point blank in the passenger seat. So Alice, you know, starts freaking out, holds her hands up, trying to fend Ed off. Ed ends up shooting her twice, 
both times through her hands and the third time in the temple. Ed takes blankets to cover both the girls up. Roz is dead. Alice is dying. And he leaves the scene. He comes across a checkpoint. Somehow, Ed convinces the cops that the girls have had too much to drink and he's just taking them home. So the cops are like, yeah, sure. Good job. Be on your way. How do you not see blood? He puts a blanket over them. But, I mean, if you're I, bleeding. I know. I mean, come on. And, like, you put a blanket over their faces, too? I mean, that seems sketchy enough. Yeah. Ah, okay. It's Santa Cruz. What you doing? It's Santa Cruz. Um, Once Ed is out of the city, he slows down and shoots Alice at point-blank range, finally killing her. He moves the bodies into the trunk. Ed goes back home, waits till his mother falls asleep. It's probably about 10, 11 o'clock at night. He goes out, he opens the trunk, and beheads both women in front of his mother's house with a hunting knife. He would later comment that anyone could have looked out the window and saw him at any point. I was just thinking, too, like, what are you yeah, like walking your started, dog? Like, yeah, oh, anything. He started getting sloppy about it. Yes. Um, the next morning, Carnell goes to work. He brings the heads into the room, cleans them, removes the bullets. He brings Alice upstairs and has sex with her corpse. Even goes as far as to wash her body. And he, then he puts her back in the trunk with Roz. This is the first time Ed doesn't dissect the corpse. He said it no longer thrilled him, but he does remove the hands. He drives up the Eden Canyon Road at 2 a.m. where he throws the beheaded bodies. And he travels down Devil's Slide, which I looked up a picture of it. It's literally like a stretch of road that runs along the coast. And it's like the cliff like meets the ocean. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, so he throws the body, or the, uh, he throws the hands and the heads out the window. So Ed's like feeling, he's feeling cocky. He's feeling good. He's, he's getting sloppy. He's feeling invisible, invincible. He evaded the cops three times now. Yeah. Right. And then he in- beheads these girls in front of his mom's house. About a week later after the killings, Rosalind and Allison's bodies were found, and then in March, uh, their heads were found. This murder is probably the one Ed is most known for, and that is when he kills his mother. Spoiler alert. Uh, He kills Carnell Sienaberg on April 20th, 1973. Carnell came home from a party drunk, and this woke Ed up. She was sitting in bed, reading a book, and notices Ed standing in the doorway, and in such a condescending tone, says, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now, end quote. Ed replies, nope, good night, and shuts the door. Carnell was asleep. Ed would bludgeon her to death with a claw hammer and slit her throat. He would drag her body into the kitchen, decapitate her, have sexual intercourse with her head, head on a shelf, and proceed to throw darts at it and scream at it for hours. He would also cut out her tongue, rip her larnax out, and put it down the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal couldn't break down the muscle, so it ejected it back into the sink. Oh, that's disgusting. Isn't it, though? It just, like, hit your forehead. Like, (laughs) oh, God. (laughs) But Ed would later say, quote, it seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. After the murder of his mother and her friend, Ed took off, hopped up on caffeine pills, drove his car all the way to Pueblo, Colorado. He was positive by this point that the news was going to hear of his mother's murder. It was going to be all over the radio, all over the TV channels. But shockingly, no one knew about the murder and no one was looking for Ed. He said that the hate of his mother was the goal of these killings. And now that she's dead, he hit a breaking point and there's no point to be killing anyone else because his mother was ultimately the main goal. So he turns himself in April 24th, 1973. My birthday. Oh. Oh, no. 1973? Well, no. (laughs) 
not, not the exact year. The day is spot on. <laughs> so Ed's driving around Pueblo, Colorado, trying to find a phone booth. Finally finds one, pulls over, calls the cops. And at first, the cops didn't believe Ed because he had basically befriended them. And he was hanging out with them all the time. They knew him. And they were just like, this doesn't sound like something that Ed could do. So the first cops that he talked to hung up on him because they just didn't believe him. He had to call them back, and he asked for a specific officer's name that he knew from the jury room. He made sure that they kept him on the phone while they went to the house and found the bodies. When they did find the bodies, the Colorado police came to take Ed in while Santa Cruz County police drove to come get him. Uh, When the cops showed up at the phone booth, they said that he was so tall and so big that he was literally the size of the phone booth. Like when he had to go get his handcuffs on, he was holding the top of the phone booth. If that doesn't put it in perspective. I just mean, this dude was jolly green giant. Uh, (laughs) Something like that. Something like that. (laughs) Um, Ed never put up a fight while he was getting taken into custody because he... Like I said, he was so spent on these murders and his words that he was just like, I'm I'm done. I'm not even going to try to fight this anymore. So cops took him in, didn't put up a fight, took them, the, Cal- or the California police, about the same amount of time as him, three days to get to Colorado driving. So by the time that the California police officers got him, they have another three-day turnaround to drive back to California. Jeez. The entire time, he is just nonstop talking about these murders. He's Jeez. talking about oh why he did it, where he did graphic it. Graphic details. Just graphic about, yeah. details. Would not shut up. And, you know, the police are eating it up because they're just like, we need to eventually know this. So they're writing everything down. Everything and can and will be used against you in the court of law. Exactly. Yeah, but can you imagine three <laughs> days worth of that? Like, at the end yeah, of it, yeah, I would have been like, I'd that's be like, what they were saying. Okay, was like, I'd be like, shut the Shut up. up. Like, I can't hear any more of this. Yeah. Right. And they just like the graphic detail. Imagine mm-hmm. if you are someone who is not interested in hearing that at all. Yeah. And then you have three days with a freaking serial killer mm-hmm. in the back of your car. Oh. I just, I'd be over it. So when they got back into California, one of the questions that Ed asked was, is there media? is are do people know of what i did like is am i going to get attention for all this Mm -hmm. and in between stops going to california you know restroom stops hotel stops people were getting wind that they caught the co-ed killer so they were trying to follow the police cars and everywhere they went ed would get out of the police car and just like strut around like take photos of me like ask me questions that here's the co-ed killer here i am so he was very much loving all the attention from the public you know when he got caught um so they finally take him in they get him booked and everything and fun fact because ed had killed everyone that he could possibly know he had no one to put down as like next of kin or medical emergency Mm -hmm. so the bookie had to put down his information in case something medically ever happened to ed it's just like imagine like i mean weren't his sisters still alive yeah, but they had nothing. But to they do had with nothing him. to do with it. Well, he true. probably didn't even know where stuff, they yeah. were at that point. No. You know, I don't think he did. Yeah, actually. Yeah. So it's just like imagine being that that guy at yeah. the police office, like just like man, I gotta put down my name for Ed Kemper, like right? Oh, <laughs> I like, just, no, thank you. You ain't calling me, right? So I was just like, geez. Um, so once they get him booked and everything, he starts working, of course, with the police officers. No problem. Happy go lucky about it. 
He's taken him around town to all the dumping sites and had no problem recalling all of the information on each dumping site. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they get to these bodies, they're so just beyond gone. Yeah, and even if they can find them, I'm sure animals have... Yeah, it was just, they were just so... I, I just in these horrible conditions yeah. and then like the heads in the in the yard mm-hmm. it's just you come back to a half half of a head yeah. by the time everything's done yeah. um apologize for the graphic detail there um may 7th 1973 he's indicted on eight counts of first degree murder his defense was forced to put in a plea of not guilty by insanity kind of like his first case However, they had multiple court-appointed doctors say he was fit to stand trial. I think he had three doctors say that he was fit. And normally, you're only getting one, maybe two at the most. Ed had three doctors that Mm -hmm. they brought in, court-appointed, to say that he was fine. Yeah. So then on November 8th, uh, 1973, a jury declared him guilty of all accounts of first-degree murder, and they asked for the death sentence. Ed was all about getting the death sentence, and he wanted to be, like, the death sentence that he wanted was to be by torture, which, again, preface Mm -hmm. that he had all those weird games with his sisters, like, electric chair, you know, roll you up in a burrito and see how long it takes (laughs) you to warm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just all these things are, like, lining up even in his adult life. Um, But at the time, a year prior... So 1972, California had passed a law that they wouldn't do the death sentence anymore. Um, Something, forget the exact term for it. But he couldn't have the death sentence. So he was sentenced to seven years to life per count and to serve them concurrently, which means all at once. Um, During the time of him being indicted and then the actual, like, guilty charge, Ed tried to commit suicide twice and loosely based on a quote from him and it hasn't really been confirmed what he meant by it but it was rumored that he said that he wasn't expecting to be around when he got caught Mm -hmm. so whether that means he had planned a suicide all along once he was finally done doing all of this or he literally thought he was never going to be caught and he was going to be dead from old age or Mm -hmm. you know whatever it is but he just said like he didn't think he was going to be around when he was caught for the crimes Um, So, Ed is held at the California Medical Facility. He is going to be 73 years old this year, I think, if I did the math right on that. Um, He's up for parole because he's not on a death sentence. He can have parole, and he's had parole since, I forget, it was like four years after he was put in jail. They just keep rejecting the parole. Yeah, so like he was rejected for parole multiple times, mm-hmm. but then ultimately he just stopped applying. He's like, yeah. he was just like, he even said, I should not be released in, Mm-mm. I mean, this is yeah. paraphrasing, but I should not be released into the world because I'm going to pick back up where I left off. Yeah. Like people are he's going self-aware. to get murdered. He's, he knows. He's not dumb. No, like he said this whole time, he is a smart, no. smart man. Like he knows that. He's it, like, I've finessed this system more than once. Trust me, you don't want me out there. Which is interesting that he would admit that. Right? Yeah. But it's because he knows. Yes. Because the whole time in in Ascadero, I think that's it. Atascadero. Atascadero, and this um, California medical facility, he is a model prisoner. Mm -hmm. He gets along with everybody. everybody He can manipulate what what he wants. Like, everybody's into him. 
especially Ed himself. Um, so yeah, he's up for parole again in 2024. More oh. than likely, he's going to um, skip up. out on that. Yeah, it's coming up. And I don't think that um, he's going to apply for parole, personally. Um, I hope not. I mean, Mindhunter caught a lot of trac- attraction, so I think... Uh, True. I would hope, yeah, most judges are... I guess it's not a judge, it's a... I don't know. Parole, it is. parole board. It is a, yeah. yeah, parole board. No, I would hope they're smart enough to be like, no. Yeah, yeah I think that not. he's... Um, but since his time that he's been in prison, so since the 70s, um, he since he's such a model prisoner, he was able to get a job within the prison to do audiobooks for the visually impaired. Have, did we not learn from the first job we gave him in the hospital? <laughs> that maybe he should not be given jobs. <laughs> and anything that has to do with children definitely yes. seems like it should be off limits. Yes, so he has recorded... 200 some books including original like star wars novels mm-hmm. like i just want you guys narrative. to know i will be researching every single one of these audiobooks so when well, i have my child she will, <laughs> she not, will be not be listening to, to any of these audiobooks. kristen is pregnant oh we have not said this yet kristen's pregnant yes so she's it's soon due in um, july yes early july early july but he's under a name right like a code name yeah like, they they didn't put in there like hey ed kemper the co-ed killer is reading this even book. worse like why would you hide it from me like i should be able to make that decision for myself if i want my child to hear the voice of a killer yeah so I agree. he I agree. recorded 200 some books um but he cannot record anymore because at some point he had a stroke mm-hmm. so he can't record the books anymore oh darn <laughs> darn and another fun fact about where um Ed has been is he was in the same prison block as Charles Manson Mm. and there have been rumors that him and Charlie did not get along that he did not I could see that I could see that yeah and also there were prisoners that Ed did not care for and (laughs) Haley and I talked about this (laughs) there is one prisoner in particular and he would he would sing, sing and Ed didn't want him to sing so when he would start singing he'd spray water on him mm-hmm. like he was a cat yes and he learned okay don't sing because ed's going to spray with water but if he gave him a peanut it was okay to sing yes so like he, and he would ask how he'd be you like, train another human like that because it's ed kemper it's ed kemper, it's ed kemper. i kemper. just don't get it but and then he would ask is it okay if i sing now ed yeah and, and ed then would he, tell him yes or no oh, no yeah so i yeah, mean dude's crazy crazy smart manipulative i mean he is this dude is something else yeah but he i mean you know famously known for these murders but another thing that he's famously known for is uh john douglas and robert wrestler love them of the uh behavioral science unit in the fbi created a sub program of behavioral science unit and that was the criminal profiling program and that was started shortly after ed was imprisoned um in 1974 and the objective of this was to create a profile for serial killers. So Robert and John um, spoke with Ed on multiple occasions for, I think, a couple decades mm-hmm. worth of interviews with him because they just kept coming back to him asking all these important questions on trying to build this profile for what a serial killer would look like, what triggers them, what what they do. Do they go back to the crime scenes? Do they stay away from them? So all this kind of stuff was really based on Ed's firsthand accounts of why he was a killer. Um, So there's several dozen interviews with them. 
um, and it's basically a handbook of serial killers. Um, since they started working with Ed, the FBI has been able to identify and capture several serial killers um, based on the cro- profile that Ed helped them make. Um, also, there is a fantastic show on Netflix called Mindhunter, and it's based off of uh, John and Robert's interviews, not just with Ed, but um, they interview Charles Manson, they interview um, just tons of other people, and it's, I mean, loosely based. It's a Netflix show, but yeah. it's all true. So, mm-hmm. And it's based off of John Douglas's book called Mindhunter, which I highly, highly, highly recommend because I've read it because <laughs> this intrigues me so much but that's what it's based off of because and you might want to read it because we're still hoping for a third season of Mindhunter which we're hoping from because they they said that they wanted to have five seasons yes so but didn't know, it get canceled three through five it's uh, on a canceled. permanent hold oh, permanent hold oh, per- oh. okay. well, and it left off with BTK which yes. was supposed right. to pick up third season which like we said we are from Kansas City and Wichita is a hop skip and jump away from yeah. where we it's are about at. a three-hour drive from where we're at. So we uh, we were really hoping for a third <laughs> season, too. We really wanted that, <laughs> to, to dive in there. <laughs> Doug, uh, Dennis Rader to uh, make an appearance. But, yes. Um, fingers crossed. Hopeful thinking. Yes. But, um, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's Big Ed. He's um, super smart, serial killer, mm-hmm. um, and he's still alive and well in California. Yeah. Just hanging out. Not recording audiobooks. So now I think we'll kind of go into a discussion of our thoughts, feelings, and um, emotions. Emotions about <laughs> serial killers and Ed in particular. And Ed in particular. Okay, so do you think his, because uh, he had a pretty stellar record in prison. So do you think it was because he does better in prison versus society, or do you think it has something because he found peace after he killed his mom? I think he's just smart. I think he knows how to play the system. Mm-hmm. I think he knows how to like manipulate any situation and just be happy. Like, yeah, it, it was obviously against women. There's probably not many women around him, so mm-hmm. like that urge probably isn't there the same. But I still feel like he's just he knows what he's doing. He's smart. He knows how to make everyone feel yeah. as though he's yeah just chilling. Yeah, I think that he does better in prison because he's secluded. Yes, and he's not around women. Because I mean, he he even said. I know that I would kill women if you let me out of here. So, I mean, mm-hmm. he still has that hatred Absolutely. of women. So, I mean, he's smart enough to recognize his own downfall and knows yeah. that that's why he's going to thrive and, and fucking die in prison mm-hmm. is because he just, he can't control himself yeah. out in, in society. I think it also has to do with structure because I know he said um, when he first got out, like, 60s 70s, it was the hippie era. So, it was True. like the free love, like whatever mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's why he was gravitating towards working with the police but because he strived for that structure that's true that's a good point and that is i mean this is what time you go to bed this is what i'm gonna eat this is what you can't yeah. do here it's the same thing and he i don't think maybe he can't handle the you're on your own kind of yeah. thing and not to mention too he's still kind of getting that fulfillment of befriending police officers because he's befriending true. the people the, the officers in the jail and yeah. so you know anybody higher up in the prison system I mean, they're not even going to bat an eyelash at him, I mean, in all honesty. No. So because of Ed, you know, we learned that he liked to torture animals. He tortured a couple cats um, in his early childhood. And he also injected himself into the investigation, which is some things that we have seen with other serial killers. They kind of carry the same 
M.O., the BTK killer, he uh, toured the um, the police station, and somehow he got into the room where it yeah, showed true, yeah. his his work when they were investigating yeah. who the BTK killer was. So I find it kind of interesting because we assume that serial killers have this certain look. But if we look at Ted Bundy, we know that looks can be deceiving. But just like Ted, I mean ed his looks can be a little deceiving too he was an awkward bumbling kind of a guy and he ended up being a serial killer although i would be scared of his size like, oh 100 yeah like if i caught him on the street i'd be like i don't want to mess I with that dude but i would not think oh no. you probably have a severed head no, in your trunk absolutely not like it'd be more like oh hey i don't want to mess with you and then when i would talk to him i would have probably been like oh i don't like you're just awkward. He's just like a gentle giant. Yes, like that's what you would think. And sa- same with with Ted. I mean, he was this charming, charismatic. Oh yeah, guy. You would mm-hmm. never think that they were capable of. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, and even if you think about Jeffrey Dahmer to an extent as well, he was an awkward kid, mm-hmm. but he had friends in high school, and yeah. he was able to pick up so many people. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, it's not just based on the looks. I mean. Yeah literally crazy people walking amongst us and oh, you have no idea yeah, exactly. and that's what's so freaky about oh, yeah. it is you don't know no uh so why do you think he showed remorse if you remember back uh when Kristen was talking when he killed uh his grandpa or i'm sorry when he killed his grandma he was like uh i don't want my grandpa to see so i'm gonna kind of put him out of his misery and then also not showing not wanting the girls to show fear like keeping them at ease until the very last minute. Why do you guys think that he uh, he did that? Well, for his, I think for his grandpa, it's more about like he looked up to the men in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, he was let down eventually by by them, but he still looked up to them in a way that obviously he never looked up to his mom or grandma. So there's just a difference in how he saw them as people. Yeah. So I think that's why he felt as though he wanted to like prevent him from like going through. Yeah, it seemed like his grandpa was ultimately the only person that ever showed him any sort of love and affection and actually wanted ed to you know be a normal person and not be put down all the time so his grandpa i mean was the only person who showed him any any sort of normalcy so i think kind of like i was saying he portrayed that as like a mercy killing Mm -hmm. because he cared so much about him Mm -hmm. so i think that's why he was so upset about his grandpa or had any sort of remorse about it and then with, with the girls with anita you know the first the first uh, two that he killed marianne and anita he didn't want anita to know that he killed marianne so that is kind of like you said a, a kind of a mercy killing but kind of in a different way not because he loved anita like he did his grandfather but more of just uh he didn't want to know. It was just like a whole. It was a it was a weird sympathy, sympathy, like thing. like like. A but mi- I almost wonder if it was more about just keeping them calm and staying in control of the situation. That, that could again, be. like oh, this man is I very mean, smart. Yeah. So does he actually care about not wanting her to know that she's dead, or is it more like get out of the car, go try to help your friends? So now you're in a position to where yeah, I can a easily vulnerable, do what oh, I want. It's totally position. like manipulation as well. But I mean, I would think. I don't know. In my mind, it's like, yes, he hated women, but at the same time, like, these women also never did anything to him. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, just like when he acted, like, brushed across her boob, and he was like, I'm embarrassed, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It's because it's like some part of him, you know, just my armchair 
you know, breakdown of this is like some part of him had to know that those girls never harmed him. Yes. He was taking out that rage on them because mm-hmm. of how his mother and really his grandmother made him feel. Oh yeah. So well, they were he, just w- he was projecting. Yeah, he was they projecting. were victims of his of his fucked up projection. But mm-hmm. despite doing that, it's still hard for me to like consciously understand that he like had any sympathy for any of them like yeah it, he might mm-hmm. have i'm not saying it he was like a it was an ed kemper to... uh logic <laughs> right yeah 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 right. <laughs> i just i feel like it's there not has normal to be, logic mm-mm, there has yeah. to be something else behind it because i just don't see you ultimately having any any remorse yeah like all of a sudden you're yeah. just like oh i'm sorry yeah you're uh, just freaking awkward and you yes. yeah he's a big old bumble butt i mean like he said uh, but speaking of remorse, the only time he really seemed to show any was when he uh, was talking about when he killed his mom. He recounted all these murders over, like Emily said, three days. He just explained these murders in graphic details. But the only time he really got choked up is when he talked about murdering his mom, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, that just goes back to me saying I don't understand him having remorse whatsoever. So yeah. for me, that's just like... You think it was fake? What? I don't necessarily think it's fake. It's just I, I can't comprehend how that happened. I just, I just mm-hmm. don't understand with who he is and his psychology. Like I don't, yeah. I don't get what. Do I you think it was relief? Maybe. Well, because I was gonna in like the kind of thinking of like he was emotional in the sense of it brought back still like anger and rage of his mom and you know like when people get mad about something they start to get like kind of emotional about like mm-hmm. their voice starts to, that, yeah. to like yeah. shake so it's like was he he probably wasn't upset in, as in a sad sense he was upset as in like a rage to like, like he, talk he was about taken back to that day like he was taken back like reliving like just the hate that she yeah. would spew on him and maybe that's why maybe he seemed like he was getting choked up or breaking up about it because he was so mad Mm -hmm. not necessarily because he was sad and upset about his mom but then there's also like he always wanted that acceptance from her so maybe part of it is like saying okay i'm never going to get that acceptance like it's 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 over over. yeah Yeah. accepting the unaccepted all agree that without ed being so open and willing to talk about these murders with john and robert that we might not have caught as many serial killers as we have caught now right yeah oh 100 because a lot of the mo's that ed has was also mo's of other people of other people and also like signs of you know the mother being a stressor the family being a stressor um abuse to animals you know yeah all that kind of stuff that we know now was really formative Mm -hmm. years when ed was talking to them and they were developing this profile that we now know is like oh yeah those are for sure signs Mm -hmm. that something's wrong with you yeah that yeah something is very telling of the years to come so i think that will end our episode of uh ed kemper Oh my god, I'm gonna feel like an influencer. But like and subscribe, <laughs> rate us, uh, drop some comments, and we are going to leave with this quote that Emily found. So the quote is from John Douglas, and it's just an interesting point of view to leave you guys on. Um, to understand the artwork, you must look at the artist. That's deep. deep. That's pretty good. All Thanks, right. guys, for listening. Hope you liked it. Bye. Bye.